Happy New Year, everybody. I hope your Christmas was uh, one filled with worship and joy as you spent time with family and friends. And I pray that this new year uh, would be a blessing to you and to your family uh, and that God just continues to reveal himself to you in a way uh, that you begin to understand him more and more and that your heart is ultimately just gripped uh, by our Lord and Savior. Well, we're uh, going to start a new sermon series and uh, talk about that in just a moment. But just to give you a little heads up that next week, uh, I'm going to share some updates uh, of what's going to be coming up in the ministry year. Uh, what this church is trying to what this church is going to try to do, some of the events that we have and some of the things that we've been having some conversations kind of behind the scenes. But we just want to bring that forward next week just to bring you guys in on the direction that we're moving. So if you have a chance, I would really encourage you to be here next week so you can hear that. Uh, and then if you have questions after that, we can we can talk through that some more. Uh, but how many of you as kids probably made some sort of club growing up, right? You know, the kind of club where you gave yourself a name and uh, you, you had like secret handshakes and, you know, there were certain traditions or rituals that you, you did. And, you know, there was some sort of ceremony that you probably had to get into the club. Like I often think about, you know, the little rascals and they had their He-Man Woman Hater Club, you know, that eventually changed, right? Anybody, anybody make a club like that growing up? Anybody? No? Okay, just a few of you. All right. Well, there's all kinds of traditions uh, and rituals that exist. Uh, and there's a lot called these things called rites of passages, you know, where in different cultures, you, you go from essentially kind of being the child in, into adulthood or into a new phase of life. Let me just share a couple of these. Uh, in Indonesia, there's a tribe that lives in the rainforest called the Menatawi tribe, that when the girls have come of age, in order to show off their beauty, what they'll do is they'll actually begin to file their teeth in a painstaking process. Literally, they will have an actual file where they will go through each of their teeth and sharpen them to a point. And so that is considered a sign of beauty uh, in that particular culture. Uh, in Australia, the Aborigines have what's known as the walkabout that when kids are somewhere between the ages of like 10 to 16, uh, their families will send them off into the outback by themselves where they have to attempt to survive in the wild on their own, as well as the fact that it's now become a spiritual journey where they're trying to find themselves uh, in this kind of what could be potentially up to six months where they're all by themselves. Uh, in, in Ethiopia, the Hamar tribe, uh, when a father believes that his son is ready to get married and start a family, they will gather the entire community together and that child will then need to jump over 10 cows four times in a row. When I say jump over, he has to run along the backs of these 10 cows without falling off. And he has to do that over a period of seven days. Because if he apparently can make it across 10 cows four times without falling off, it will demonstrate that he's able to have a cow and have a family at that point. Uh, and in Brazil, another tribe out in the rainforest, the Sateri Maui, 
they do something with what's known as the bullet ant. If you don't know, the bullet ant has a very painful sting. They say it's about 20 to 30 times stronger than a sting of a wasp. Have you ever been stung by a wasp before? This is a lot stronger than that. And what they do is they will gather hundreds of these bullet ants and they will, they will basically put them in some sort of liquid that kind of hypnotizes them, knocks them out. They stick them in these woven gloves and then they wake the bullet ants up as the kids will, as the boys will put the gloves on and they will have to stand there for about 10 minutes and allow these things to sting them without showing any sign of weakness. And this could actually go on over an entire year until that tribe feels that that boy is ready to become a warrior at that point. So these are all different kinds of rituals and traditions and rites of passages as people, again, go from one stage of life to the next. So, so why do I start with that? Because today we're starting a new sermon series uh, in the book of Leviticus. I know it's well-preached and well-versed and well-quoted by many of you. You've all committed it to memory in terms of Scripture because when you're out sharing the gospel, that's often where we go to highlight who Jesus is, right? Well, again, my goal this year has been to have us see our hearts and have us work on our hearts. And so the reason why we're doing a study on Leviticus is because it's going to continue to help us understand what is the holiness of God. And we already did a sermon series on that where we said that God is distinct and God is unique and he's different. He is the God of all gods and there's nothing that compares to him. Well, this helps us to further understand that relationship that we have between him and our God. And so as we go through the book of Leviticus, it's not going to be a book where you're going to find a lot of narrative or gospel stories. You're not going to find deep theological truths where a prophet or Jesus himself is preaching something. Quite frankly, what you're going to find is it's a bunch of do's and don'ts uh, as we go through uh, this. But if we understand the proper context, if we understand the nature of the book and how it fits to the story of God, what we will walk away with is a deeper, deeper understanding of who the Lord is himself. So I've, I've titled Leviticus, The Cost of Holiness. Because again, my prayer and my hope is, is that when we finish this series, that you will have a deeper understanding of what the cross actually means to you and I. Because again, I know we often talk of the gospel and we know that Jesus died on the cross, but that is something we so easily in our lives can constantly gloss over and take for granted of what Christ has done. So what I'm going to do today is just kind of do an introduction to the book of Leviticus. We're going to talk about the context. Where does it fit into the terms of the overall arch of the story of the Bible? We're going to talk about the structure and how it's set up because the structure is a bit different from what we are used to. And then ultimately, what is the purpose that we are attempting to try to, to go through uh, as we go through? So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Leviticus chapter 1. I'm going to start with that today. And so allow me to read Leviticus starting in chapter 1 here. It said, The Lord spoke to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting. Okay, so that's the only verse I'm going to read today out of Leviticus. Okay, I know that's a very powerful passage. Uh, it's a very powerful verse to you all. You're, again, all enthralled with who the Almighty God is at this point. But I'm going to come back to this 
this, this verse here. And again, it seems very simplistic, but after we talk through the introduction and I bring it back again, we're going to see something very powerful in this actual introduction here. Now, the book of Leviticus comes off the coattails of the book of Exodus. Again, what is Exodus? Exodus is the enslavement of God's people as they went down because of the famine in Egypt. Uh, and as, as uh, Joseph dies off and the people don't know who he is anymore, the, the Egyptians are afraid. They enslave the Israelites and they cry out to God. And so God sends them Moses. And Moses, again, is raised in Pharaoh's palace. And he sees one of his fellow Hebrews uh, being accosted by one of the Egyptian guards. And so he goes out and he kills him and everybody sees it and he runs away. And then God basically appears to him and says, listen, you're going to deliver my people. And so he goes back and because of Pharaoh's hardness and stubbornness, we see the 10 plagues. The, the Israelites cross through the Red Sea. The water comes on the Egyptians' armies. And now they begin to wander through the desert, hearing the call of God as they're trying to get back into the actual promised land. And so as they're wandering through the desert, God brings them to Mount Sinai and he calls Moses up to the mountain in Exodus 19. And he says, Moses, I'm going to I'm going to give you a lot of information. I'm going to I'm going to give you the, the law here, but I'm going to do something through this law that I'm going to give you. So in Exodus 19, five through six, it says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So he says, Moses, I'm just going to lay this out here very general. Okay, uh, I'm calling you to go back and tell my people that, that if you obey, I'm going to give you a set of laws, that if there is obedience, you will be my treasured possession. Out of all of the, the tribes and nations in the world, you are going to be my dear apple of my eye. And furthermore, you are going to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to the rest of the world. Okay, so, so Moses, this, this is the context of what I'm about to do here. And if we do it, there can be a joyous and harmonious relationship that exists between you and I and can exist between you and the world. And so God gives the, the, the Ten Commandments, these general rules. He also has some information about this tabernacle of where God's going to dwell. And at the end of the book of Exodus, here's what we have in chapter 40. It said, the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, when the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, they would be set out. But if the cloud did not, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of the Israelites during all of the travels. So he calls Moses up, tells him what he's going to do, gives him the law, and then God comes down and he's now going to dwell in the midst of his people in this tent of meeting and eventually coming and dwelling in the tabernacle itself. And again, he says, if you obey, you are my chosen people. And so he makes this covenant between them and God. And I'm going to kind of craft a picture like this. That here's what I imagine happens, that when the glory of God comes down, 
All of the Israelites see this and they go, there is our God. And they can't wait and they're excited. And so they get ready to go rushing into the tabernacle to be in the presence of their God. And as they're about to go rushing in, God basically stops them and says, what are you doing? Whoa, 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 stay right there. And they're like, but, but God, you, you just said we, we can be in relationship with you. And he said, yeah, I know that. And they're like, well, that's what we want. We, we want to be in your presence, God. And God's like, no, you're not coming into my house. Like, what do you mean we can't come into your house? And he says, do you not understand that, that I am a holy God and you are, you are filthy? Your feet are dirty. Your hands are dirty. You've got filthy lips. There's no way you're stepping foot in this clean house. And so they're saying, well, God, how, how do we get to come into your presence then? And he says, well, let me give you the book of Leviticus and I will tell you how you can enter into my presence. So, so that, is, that is the context here, that if we want to enter into the presence of a holy God, we ourselves must be made holy. And so Leviticus helps the Israelites understand how all of this holiness is going to come about for them. So that's the context. Now, let's talk about the structure here. Again, as I said, the structure is a little bit different uh, than the way that we've done it. So I actually put together that paper you might have gotten that lays out the, the kind of the, the organization for it. Uh, again, I, I won't normally do this, but just again, the context here, the book itself, I thought this really is going to seem like we're all over the place. So let me just put something together to help you kind of see the overall format of how this organization is going to work. But there's a couple of things here we need to understand. First off, the style of book. This is a law book. This is not a book, again, about the disciples going out on journeys and all the miracles that happened. This is not a book about prophecy and then telling them what's going to happen if they don't follow the word of God and then all these miraculous events happen. This is a law book. This is a book where as we go through, God says, do this, do it this way, don't do it that way. And we need to mentally prepare ourselves for that. Because if I just go through the book and I'm like, this is so boring, all it is is a list of rules, we are going to quit and we are not going to finish the book of Leviticus. And so we have to understand that there is important in this, right? God has set everything out for us. And I get it, nobody likes laws, nobody likes the police pulling them over because they've been speeding. But let's be honest, if there are not laws in our lives, what do we get? We get chaos and we get violence. We get destruction. So there has to be laws that keeps everything in order and keeps everything into place. And so that's what this book is trying to do. And more importantly, what God is doing with this is saying that if you stay within the bounds of what I'm asking, there will be there will be prosperity and blessing for your life. Quite frankly, if you can stay within the bounds of these laws, you will have the greatest life possible here and now for all of eternity. See, that's the way we need to try to understand the law. So hopefully that, that sits a little bit different for you. God's not a killjoy, okay? 
Quite frankly, it's the opposite. God is trying to save us and give us the greatest joy possible. Okay, so that's the style of the book. The second thing is there's going to be all kinds of cultural differences. We're going to go through this book and you're going to be like, why this animal? Why this sacrifice? Why does he do it this way? Why does he do it that way? I don't understand why it's just not one same pattern and everything's exactly the same. We're going to have a lot of those kind of why questions. And here's what we need to realize. If we get stuck in the why questions, we're going to miss the bigger picture of Leviticus. Okay? We can't get ourselves bogged down. Now, we will do our best to pull out the why because we do want some understanding, but we may not always get it. And I think we kind of need to think of it like this. How many of you as parents have ever had the situation where your kid wants to do something and you tell them no and they keep bugging you? And then what do you finally say? Because I said so, right? And then that is to be the end of the discussion, right? The reason why we do that is because as parents, we know we're the authority and we don't have to continue to justify ourselves to you. What you need to understand is what I told you and you just need to do it. But isn't that how we often come before God sometimes? We often come before God and we're like, God, I need to know why. And until you tell me the why, I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to do what you've told me to do. Well, what God is thinking is what you don't need is understanding in this moment. What you need is trust and obedience in me. And I think that's the way we need to look at this sometimes. And also with some of these cultural differences, we may not actually have any good understanding the Israelites may have understood and God just has simply wrote it that way. Or there may be even parts where the Israelites just didn't even know why either. But God said, this is what it is. OK, so there will be some of those moments. And furthermore, we can't put our own cultural standards on the Bible. I can't look at the Bible and go, what they're doing is wrong. How dare they sacrifice that animal that way? Again, this is a different culture, guys. Okay? And, and so we can't look and say, this is what we want or this is what we prefer. We have to remember, this is God's standard and God's rules. Okay? So we can't, we can't put our own mindset into that. Okay? So that's the second thing is the cultural piece. And the third piece we need to, to look at, again, is the actual structure and organization of the book itself. So what the Bible will often use uh, is this thing called a chiastic structure. We prefer linear, right? We like chronological. I want to go from point A to point B, right? It's like how many of you have watched some of these movies where they're constantly time traveling and you can't figure out what's what. Again, we struggle with that. What the Bible will often do, and this is kind of the poetic nature of it, it uses the ABBA format. It's like a mirror that I'm going to talk about something here, and then all of a sudden, 15 chapters later, I'm going to talk about it again. And what do we do? We go, why didn't you just put that over here? It would have made a whole lot more sense. But again, the Bible is written differently. A lot of times the way the Bible will work itself in and then work itself back out at the same pattern. Right. We we like to build to that culminating point where, again, the scriptures will build to it and then again, come back out of it. So the way that I have structured this 
is done in a way that I'm not going to go through chapter by chapter. We will cover all of Leviticus. And if you look at the back of that paper I lay out for you, you'll notice that what we're going to do is try to keep these parts similar, right? So we're going to do all of the rituals together. We're going to do all of the priesthood together. Uh, and then we're going to do... Um, or I'm sorry, the, the, the offerings, and then we'll do the rituals. And then we're going to culminate to the Day of Atonement in chapters 6 and 7. So everything in this book is moving itself towards chapter 16 and chapter 17, the Day of Atonement. Okay, so that's what we have to keep in mind. Now, everything before chapter 16 is all about our relationship with God. How do we worship how do we find the holiness of God and exist in that actual relationship? So that's what happens before the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, 17. Everything after that is all about the practical. Now, how do I walk with God? How do I have an actual relationship with him on a day to day basis and not just a relationship with God, but also with my fellow man? Okay, so that so that's kind of the two sides that again would be filtering here uh, towards the the Day of Atonement. So we're going to work through both of these, and then chapters twenty six and twenty seven is just the falling action. It's just the aftermath, right? How do we? What are the blessings and cursings? And then how do we dedicate ourselves to God? Okay, so that's kind of the structure that we're going to go about. And again, the big thrust of this is this idea of holiness and our need for holiness as we go through. And so, what has God done? Again, God has laid out this system of sacrifice for us. So what is now the purpose of the actual book? Again, he's got a sacrificial system and he's going to have this thing called atonement. So what does atonement actually mean? Well, here's a good way of defining it. It says atonement is the deliverance of the guilty party from sin. It means to cover over, to appease or to make amends. It's characterized by a payment of ransom, or in our case, we'll talk about a sacrifice, on behalf of the guilty party, which is the sinner, to the offended party, who is the Lord, and upon acceptance, the payment or ransom rescues the guilty party, who's the sinner, from due punishment and restores the peace to the relationship between the guilty party and the offended party. So ultimately, what is atonement? I bring something to the Lord. The Lord looks at that and he either accepts that or rejects that as my apology. And if he accepts that, he then says, we're back in relationship again and everything's fine. Okay, that, that's what atonement is. And so in this book, we're going to keep seeing these phrases over and over again that says, I am the Lord. I am holy. I am the Lord. I am holy. And the big entire push and phrase is be holy because I am holy. Okay? That's, that's the big push of this. And again, why do we need holiness in our lives? Because if you and I are not holy, then what we have not done is we have not made amends with God and we are still in our state of sin. And if we are still in our state of sin, then we are now enemies of God who is now going to deserve the wrath and punishment of God. And the results of that are very catastrophic. Sin is a terrible thing. 
It's a very tragic place in our lives. Because again, if I'm not holy, if I'm not made right with God, the ultimate punishment and consequence that I get is the severity of hell in the afterlife. Not to mention all of the problems and difficulties that I will walk in this world because of the sinful decisions that I make. And also, it's important, because if I am not made holy, then that's going to impact my relationship, not only with God, but everyone else. So instead of a warm fellowship that exists between me and my fellow man, what do I get? I get a cold and sterile relationship. Instead of love, that love is now replaced with hate. Instead of kindness, we get wicked intent. Instead of selfless living, we now have a selfish heart. Instead of good, it's now been replaced with evil. And instead of building up this kingdom that God has desired for us, what do we have? We have a world of destruction where all we're doing is fighting one another and tearing each other down and killing each other for our own desires. One commentator said about this, he said, sin becomes the acid that mars and destroys everything it touches. So what, did, what does God look at? And he says, this is who you are. I need you to be holy, but you are steeped in sin. So how does the sinful become holy? How, how do we become righteous? And so he says, I'm going to temporarily offer this sacrificial system so there can be atonement for your sins. So there can be a forgiveness of your sins that can exist between you and I. And this temporary system will eventually culminate into Jesus Christ being the final and ultimate sacrifice for us. And once we are made holy, we are no longer alienated from God. We are able to be in his presence as we've been purified from our sin. But I want us to see that this book is much more than just that. This book is also missional. Remember what I said there in Exodus 19? Right? That, that, that we are to be a kingdom of priests. We are to be a holy nation to the world. God, God didn't save us and just say, go ahead and now enjoy yourselves. God saved us and now said, you have a job to do. Somebody wrote it this way. He said, redemption by this king always implies relationship. Relationship with him implies mission. And that mission is nothing less than spreading his holy kingdom throughout all of the earth. So again, I'm not just saved to enjoy a wonderful life and have a great afterlife and do as I please. No, God saved me because he wants to be in relationship with me just as he wants to be in relationship with everyone else. And he says, now it is your job to go and let people know about that relationship so you can experience, so they can experience the joy that you yourself have experienced. So Leviticus becomes crucial because it protects us and protects the Israelites from rebellion and sin to prevent them from being in that relationship with God. It kept them under the sphere of blessings and favor in God's life. 
And that protection then begins that mission where they get to show the rest of the world that this is what it looks like to live under a holy God. But again, the only way the Israelites could do that was if they themselves were a holy group of people. Right? I, I can't go out into the world and show the world that God is different and what God is like if I'm living just like the world. There's not going to be any difference. So I need to be walking in a holy, righteous way with God because then the world can see what a holy and righteous God looks like. And you know, it's the same mission that we still have today for the church, right? He says to the Israelites, you're going to be a, a holy nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. And then he tells the church, he says, go and make disciples. Go throughout the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've told you. And then he says in Acts 1, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. But you and I cannot fulfill that mission if we are not, not walking in a righteous and holy way with our God. So what we need to realize is that Leviticus is a missional book. It is a book about mission just as much as it is a book about redemption and purification and sanctification. This is not just a book of do's and don'ts. It's not just a book about loss. This is a book that has eternal consequences for you and I and everyone else in this world. So let me go back to Leviticus 1.1. Leviticus again starts with, God spoke to Moses from the tent. And then he gives Moses all of these laws. And then he finishes and then you have the book of Numbers. And do you see that there? How does the book of Numbers start? The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of the meeting. At first he spoke to him from the meeting, and now he spoke to him from inside it. So how do we go from the outside in? How do we go from being outside the presence of God to now being able to go into his presence? How is it that you and I, as sinful, filthy individuals, get to come into the presence of a holy God? How do I go from a place of evil, corruption, and destruction to now having a chance to being into the eternal love and safety and security of my eternal father? Well, that's what Leviticus is going to tell us. And here's what we're going to see. It's costly. It is extremely costly for us to go outside in. It's going to cost us a lot of things. It's going to cost us some of the best things. It's going to cost the lives of others and it's going to cost our own life. So ultimately, what are we going to see? Is that the cost of holiness 
is going to be a bloody mess. So each and every week, I pray that we will walk away with a refreshed understanding and worship of what the cross means to us. Let's pray. Father, it is a new year. And every year we, we make promises and things we want to do better. But Lord, what I desire is, is to see the cross for what it is each and every day. To know exactly how much you gave for my sins. Lord, that, that you chose to take upon my sins and my punishment because you loved me so dearly. And Lord, we, we can so callously get comfortable with you that we strip the cross of everything that it means. So for this year, as we move forward, let us never, ever, ever take the cross lightly. Amen.